Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Ribbon. This podcast is brought to you by Pete's Car Smart Kia. These guys are not here just to sell you a car, but they believe in building relationships with their customers and the community. Visit their website at petescarsmartkia.com and be sure to follow them on their social media platforms as well. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Beyond the Ribbon. My name is Ryan Parnell and as always I'm joined by my co-host and oncology nurse Pam McMillan. Hey Ryan, how are you today? I'm good, Pam. How are you? I'm good. You know, we talk a lot about side effects of the chemo, and we talk about neuropathy and fatigue and pain. There's a lot of them. Yeah, but you know, we never talk about the heart. You're right. Yeah. You're right. We're going to change that today. (laughs) Yeah. I'm excited about our guest. How about you? I am. You know, we've had, uh, our guest has actually spoken for us before, years ago, Mm -hmm. um, at our old place over when we were over at the town club and uh, super excited um, to bring this information uh, to our listeners. It's very important. Yes, it is. It's very important that they're aware, they're educated, and they get good information from our experts. That's right. That's right. So uh, we're super excited today to have Dr. David Brabham join us. Uh, Dr. Brabham, how are you? Uh, Great. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Well, good. Uh, Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, where you practice and and, uh, so forth. Uh, I'm at Cardiology Center of Amarillo um, on I-40. I've been here about 10 years. My um, specialty is um, in interventional cardiology, so a lot of that's the, the procedures and such. But I have always sort of had a strong interest um, in, um, in cancer as it relates to the heart because of some of the special uh, modalities, some of the special tests we can do um, at our facility um, uh, to, to really screen for the problems that uh, come along with cancer therapies. You know, we first heard Dr. Brabham speak uh, where we used to work. Right. Um, you came and, and gave a, a lecture, a, a discussion with the physicians, and then we both talked previously after that, you know, when we opened up over at the uh, Amarillo Town Club, like, we've got to have him come, and, and came and gave a, a talk to a room full of folks. And uh, so then when we started our list of guests, we knew we had to have Dr. Brabham. We did. We did. So let's start real quick about kind of a, a high level at the at the basics saying why does someone need to worry about as a cancer survivor why do they need to worry about their heart well um as you know many of the therapies that go along uh with treating cancer um have side effects as you've mentioned today uh some of those side effects really target the heart and uh those side effects can um can cause damage to the heart both in the acute setting and the sort of immediate setting but also it can be a little bit indolent it can be uh it can show up a, a lot later and and so uh when you're learning about your cancer therapy it's really important to know is this one of those things that bothers the heart or is it something else that it's going to bother um and so there's several uh key sort of diagnoses that that use these medicines that can um um, have the heart be uh, a, a, an innocent bystander, so to speak. Um, and it's important that we recognize these because there's things that we can do about that. You know, whenever a patient gets diagnosed with breast cancer, they get all these appointments, and one of them might be to you. Um, so whenever they come to you, what is the first thing that you look for? Um, uh, the, the first thing I look for is really s- symptoms of congestion. Um, you know, that, that's very specific. Uh, if you affect the heart with one of these cancer therapies, it causes, um, uh, the, the heart can really cause some fluid retention. And so while many folks who come to see me have symptoms that are sort of um, relate kind of to the heart, f- fatigue, weakness, shortness of breath, these sorts of things, I'm really looking for, um, are you having trouble with swelling in your belly or in your legs? 
Um, do you feel like you're bloated? Do you feel, do you get more short of breath when you're laying down than 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 at, at usual times? And th those are the screening kind of questions I ask when they uh, when they come to see me. And then sometimes you order an echocardiogram. What's the purpose of an echocardiogram for our listeners? Well, I, th I think there's two purposes of the echocardiogram, and they're very similar. The, the, the first is to screen for asymptomatic trouble. Uh, frequently, when somebody has um, uh, toxicity from, from chemotherapy, um, the, 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 the trouble can be quiet. It, it can damage your heart muscle without you knowing it. And so here you have a wounded, damaged heart that isn't going to cause you any symptoms for now, but that may, that may pop up a little bit later. Um, and so that's screening for it is really an important thing. Uh, there are several medicines that um, that are used specifically that need to be screened for, and frequently, most frequently in my practice, people come to have that echocardiogram because of the kind of technology we offer more often than they do to have an appointment with me um, because many people don't need an appointment with the cardiologist um, as they're seeing so many physicians at that time, and they just really need some screening. Um, th the second kind of patient would be someone who is having some symptoms uh, as it relates to possibly being the heart, um, and those are people that we look um, a lot more specifically and carefully at. And so those that are diagnosed with breast cancer and they do get um, trans uh, Herceptin, how often do they have to get an echocardiogram, and why is it so important to continue that screening through treatment? Um, th th that's a great question. M um, many people who have um, who have breast cancer get doxorubicin, so that's already um, uh, put you on the road to, to have some damage to the heart muscle. It's been shown um, that uh, that people who have doxorubicin can have trouble acutely, or they can have trouble many years, sometimes ten and twenty years down the road. And many of these um, uh, uh, breast cancer patients um, have already had doxorubicin. And then if you have the HER2 new receptor. Uh, positivity, then, then your your um, your survivorship is expanded by getting, like you said, trastuzumab or, or Herceptin. It's very important in, in, in my practice that people have uh, a baseline echocardiogram. Many of these people are, are already older, so we can we need to know before you get this medicine, kind of where are you at? What's what's your baseline? Um, how's your heart muscle performing? And then once you get these medicines, doxorubicin being the initial one. When you're kind of done with that, um, you know, where does your heart stand at that point? And then as you have your year of, um, or, of trastuzumab or Herceptin or, or even longer, about every three months you need to have an echocardiogram. Um, th the reason to do an echocardiogram on these people is that uh, we're looking at the ejection fraction. That's the performance. That's the gross squeezing function of the heart. The heart's a pump, and, and that's kind of the, the most basic thing that we get from an echocardiogram. With our technology, we have something called strain echocardiogram, which is really a more subtle, um, kind of a subclinical um, uh, test. And what that does is that looks at the very subtle performance of the heart. And by looking at that, we can detect who's going to have trouble three months before they actually lose performance of their heart so we can um, make adjustments appropriately. And, and so that, that's really getting ahead of the game and not waiting uh, until the heart's been damaged and hurt before we, um, uh, before we really start the, the heart therapy. Wow. So whenever you do do this test, and it does show that they could have problems, is there medications that you prescribe at that time? Yes. Uh, we, we, the first thing is to stop um, sort of poisoning the heart at that time. We, uh, we take a break from the chemotherapy. 
I, my first message to everyone coming into my office is that I want you to finish your therapy. I want you to finish your, your chemotherapy. That's important. That's why you're here. Um, I have no interest in stopping your chemotherapy in favor of the heart. We have to um, sort of treat both systems at, at once. Um, and so the first thing we do is we stop the, um, the Herceptin, and sometimes we give people a break of, um, of six weeks or 12 weeks or three weeks, depending on the clinical situation, and frequently that's uh, enough to allow the heart to sort of take a breath and recover a little bit. Uh, but um, I don't really like that. I'm a little more aggressive than that. I have two medicines, um, two classes of medicines really, a beta blocker, which would be carvedilol or metoprolol, um, is one class of medicine, and then the other class of medicine would be an ACE inhibitor such as uh, lisinopril. Uh, both of these medicines are well-known um, antihypertensives for high blood pressure, uh, but they also work great when you have um, a beat-up heart, um, either uh, from coronary artery disease or something else, and, and when you have low ejection fraction, poor performance of the heart muscle. But specifically in these disease states, when you have... Uh, chemotherapy-induced cardiotoxicity, when your heart's been damaged from some of these chemotherapies, these medicines have been shown uh, to offer you a good chance at repair of the heart muscle and protect you uh, from having further damage when you uh, restart your therapy down the road. So what I'm hearing, Pam, is ideally, from the moment of diagnosis, they need to see a cardiologist. They don't need to skip out on that appointment. And definitely, you know, continue to follow and uh, let you guys work in tandem. You know, we, when we were uh, working at one of the cancer centers here in town, we always had a multidisciplinary clinic. And gosh, I wish we'd known, or, or I wish the physicians would have included cardiology into that multidisciplinary. Would have made life a little bit easier for would've, those patients. For our, for our survivors, <laughs> absolutely. And so it's not something that they should fear. I want to reiterate that. It's not something they should fear, like going to the cardiologist, he's going to tell me to stop my chemo, and he's going to take me off, and... There may be a break, which cancer survivors typically are used to taking a holiday, if they will, right? A chemo holiday Sometimes, or uh -huh. a radiation holiday, if that happens to come up, that needs to be taken a break. Right, right. What other problems can you see with chemotherapy that um, does damage to the heart? Uh, one of the other um, problems, particularly in this new era of monoclonal antibodies, and a lot of different kinds of cancers have monoclonal antibodies, um, these medicines um, can sometimes cause trouble with uh, people's blood pressure. Um, and so knowing what your blood pressure is going into this, you know, blood pressure is a silent killer, and it's one of those things that um, I'm passionate about and obsessed with because it, it affects so many uh, parts of what I do. And a lot of people go into, um, into their cancer diagnosis and treatment having undiagnosed high blood pressure, and that's just something to sort of keep an eye on. It's just another thing to, you know, well, my blood pressure is always kind of 160 over 100 when I go to the doctor. You know, I don't, oh. I don't like to hear that. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and so some of these medicines actually exacerbate or make worse the, uh, the hypertension that they have. And so... If you're gaining new medicines, which nobody necessarily wants, nobody wants, um, but it can protect you um, from having more trouble because some of these medicines um, have blood pressure as an innocent, um, as a sort of side effect. What is the normal blood pressure that you like to see for just a normal person? Um, I would say 135 over 85 on most occasions. Um, you know, screening for blood pressure is very easy. Uh, I would say adults over the age of 45 should take their blood pressure once a week. 
you know, <laughs> Ryan, <laughs> are you that's there? not oh. popular. That's not popular. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, uh, you know, screening your blood pressure every so often, you don't just take it when you go to the doctor. That's not a good reading or good measurement. Uh, we give you actually 20 points grace when you come to the doctor, because here you are sitting in my office, not sure what's going to happen. And so just cause you have high blood pressure in the, in the office doesn't mean your blood pressure is going to be high at home. And the best way to combat that or fight that is to, uh, take your blood pressure at home and um, and know what that is. And that way, when you come into the doctor with 180 over 115, you really are just nervous and your blood pressure is 135 over 85 or lower on most occasions. Now, there, there will be, it's a range of blood pressures. What about low blood pressure? Um, good question. The, the, the low blood pressure, um, you really shouldn't be treated if you have any symptoms with the blood pressure medicines of dizziness and lightheadedness and you're down in the 110 over 70. That's a frequent thing that I see that people are overtreated on their blood pressure. And I have no qualms about backing off uh, the blood pressure. If you're not on blood pressure medicines and you have low blood pressure, that's actually a great uh, sign for your longevity from a cardiovascular standpoint, um, and it's a sign of cardiovascular health. Now, if you're getting symptoms with these low blood pressures because of dizziness and these sorts of things, then that is something to sort of concern yourself with, mainly for symptoms' sake. Um, and some of um, the, the disease states that go along with, um, uh, with cancer and um, the, the adrenal gland and those other things, uh, can cause low blood pressure, make you feel bad. Not necessarily dangerous, but it can certainly take the wind out of your sails, which you don't need in addition to um, all of the treatments that you're getting. With chemotherapy, can it cause arrhythmias, abnormal heartbeat? Um, that's not something I, I usually see. That's not something um, I, I would think is, is very frequent. Um, certainly, um, if you have PVCs, which are, are benign extra heartbeat PVCs, you may feel like your heart's flip-flopping. Some people say palpitations. That's a really benign thing for the most part. Um, when things change for you and you um, get a new diagnosis, it can make you more in tune to what's going on. And your doctor says to you, well, if you t tell me if you have any heart issues. Tell me if you have any heart sensations. And here you're asymptomatic or sort of kind of symp Should symptomatic <laughs> PVCs now become, oh, I just had one, and I think I'm going to have another one. Oh, there it was. And so you frequently have these um, uh, uh, people who come in and are, um, are have heightened concern, and you can feel those palpitations a little bit more. But I wouldn't say that uh, arrhythmias are a big I issue. Yeah. You know, Pam, we talked about breast cancer a lot just now with mm -hmm. uh, Herceptin and, and the other chemos that are used. What other uh, diseases, what other cancers are there that are affected by uh, chemo that would induce some cardiac arrhythmias? Well, um, any of the, um, are you talking about just specifically the arrhythmias? Or, or just, or the, uh, you know, cardiac toxicities that we're talking about. Um, well, th there's, doxorubicin is a very good, very powerful medicine, but it's also a little bit dirty. I mean, you, you, you um, you're killing um, uh, cells preferentially that you want to die, these cancer cells, but, um, but sometimes there's, there's innocent bystanders, and the heart would be one. And so anything that uses doxorubicin uh, would be, um, would be a, a great uh, person to, con to consider that for. Okay. What about radiation? Does it affect the heart? Uh, radiation affects the heart um, dramatically and badly. Uh, fortunately, um, over the past uh, two decades, we see very little of that because the radiation oncologists are very, very careful to direct the beam away from the heart. Um, it causes direct damage to the heart muscle, to the heart valves, and uh, premature heart artery disease. 
and we see very little of that anymore. Um, but th those are very, very terrible problems that usually manifest themselves 20, 30, 40 years after that the person's had their radiation. Um, but but the radiation oncologists now are extremely careful to uh, direct the beam away from the heart. That's not to say um, that, uh, that that doesn't happen anymore, but I, I think the incidence of that is, um, you know, profoundly lower. You know, I can hear the radiation oncologist saying, yeah, that's because we have great tools. <laughs> you know, the, the, you were talking about technology, and, and I remember some of the, the way they described, you know, turning off the shower faucet and the, plugging this hole and plugging that hole so this area doesn't get radiated. I mean, it's amazing how they can shape the beam um, and I can just hear the banter back and forth between Radonc and Medonks. And, you know, it, as you mentioned, it's unfortunate with chemo, there are a lot of innocent bystanders. You know, uh, there's peripheral neuropathy. There's all kinds of side effects that we've talked about that it's just terrible that you can't control uh, where the chemo goes. Yeah, and, and, and fortunately over time, um, particularly since some of these medicines have been around so long, we can um, uh, see the bad actors and uh, try and prevent some of those and, and learn from the past um, um, ways that we can kind of reduce these issues that, that are um, actually, I would say, fairly common. Many of these side effects are sort of 10, 15% of patients. Oh, that's no big deal. That's just one in nine. But if you're a one in nine, that's, that's a lot. And, um, and we can uh, make the, drive these numbers down, I think. What about the young adults who are getting diagnosed with cancer, getting treatment, and they decide to start a family? Is there any problems with the heart and being pregnant? Um, it, not, not specifically. Um, uh, the, the, main, the main thing is if you've had um, a diagnosis that's required doxorubicin and you've had um, a certain amount of that, and uh, let's just be clear that there's um, a, a dose of doxorubicin, a, a sort of total lifetime dose that the oncologists now are extremely careful to uh, stay below. And, and so that's dramatically reduced the number of those people. But there's still this um, uh, incidental amount that even if you don't reach the target or even if you don't reach the, the high dose that you still may have trouble in the future. Um, but the main thing with that is sort of having just a good history and physical exam to know that, you know, I don't have any symptoms with my heart. I'm doing pretty well. Uh, I'm a 28-year-old lady. I'm a survivor uh, of cancer from my childhood. I'm worried about having kids. I got I to gotta really uh, look ahead to make sure I'm not going to have any troubles. And if there's concern there, then, then certainly having someone take a careful look at her um, is important. But specifically, I, I don't think that there's a lot of um, a concern there. Is there any other risk factors um, to have cardioc cardiotoxicity um, for any of the survivors? Um, the, the, the main risk is, um, is all, if you come to my uh, office at any time during business hours, you see my patient population and they uh, tend to be a little bit older and they, um, and they you know, have a few other um, comorbid conditions, have a, a few other problems. And so if you um, are over the age of uh, 65 or if you've had blood pressure for a while or you have family history of coronary disease or personal history of, of coronary disease, these are the people especially that we need to uh, be mindful of because their heart frequently is starting off a little bit in the hole and they may not even know it. Um, and so we just have to be mindful of that as we're, uh, chasing these cardiotoxicities. Uh, and, you know, if you're bound or if you're likely to be a patient of mine 
otherwise then then you are more sensitive to um to the cardiac uh, to the cardiotoxicity associated with chemotherapy pam one of these things that i'm picking up here of course again not mr non-clinical right <laughs> as our, i've joked before our listeners are like going, where's ryan is he taking a nap you know he's actually s- and speechless speechless that's right which <laughs> never happens but you, one of the things I, i'm taking away from this that is huge is how important it is for for patients during treatment and after treatment to be educated mm-hmm. incredibly important so if if you're, you know, if, if you are listening to this and you know someone recently diagnosed with breast cancer or, you know, they're getting doxorubicin, they need to see a cardiologist. Uh, Dr. Brown, you talked about this, the screening and, and being able to project and predict and, and um, the things that you would do for, for folks. It's very important. But then on the flip side is our folks who maybe have now finished treatment and are listening to this podcast and going, gosh, did I miss out? I mean, did, did I mess up? Should I have gone to the cardiologist? I'm, I'm hearing that the, the answer is they didn't mess up. They, they still probably need to come visit, see what's going on, and, and take it from there. Uh, yeah, and, and you, one of the things is you don't want necess- to wait until it's, too, uh, until it's late in the game to try and um, repair the heart. And, and so listening to these, some of these subtle cues such as uh, shortness of breath and the congestion-type symptoms I mentioned earlier, uh, that, that's, that's really the, the, the key um, and I try really hard in my practice to be um, convenient and easy for the patients so I don't sort of be onerous and make them come in a whole bunch. Um, but we are available um, after we have a visit with someone that if there's any issues at all that, uh, that w- we can get on top of it a lot quicker. Um, and we can sort of with a lot of confidence say, you know, listen, things are going very well for you. If you have any of these new symptoms, check your blood pressure a little bit, um, get back to us. And so I, I, I I wouldn't say that I want to add myself as, as an um, just one more visit that you that you have to have on a regular basis, but uh, certainly people who are at risk, um, you know, need to have someone available for them. And that also stresses the importance of your role here at the center, Pam. Um, you know, when you go through the treatment summary and the care plan, I, I can. I've never sat in on one, but I know this has to be a, a big part of that as well. I know whenever we get to the echocardiogram. People say, well, why isn't it 100%? Why is it 60% my ejection fraction? I said, you're still doing good. <laughs> <laughs> and so they learn. I mean, they it's do. important. It's important. So if you've not, if you're listening and you have not had an appointment with Pam uh, to get your treatment summary and care plan, there's a there's an ideal window. We talk about that all the time, you know, somewhere six-ish weeks post-treatment. Um, but but there there is still a, a good portion of information you can learn from sitting down with Pam and going through your treatment summary and your survivorship care plan. So that's just a little quick plug for Pam and a side note, that's important uh, education on the tail end. That's right, you know, and we like to educate our patients. Um, so you talked about prevention, um, blood pressure medicine, and um, being aware of your symptoms. What about exercise, diet, um, cholesterol? How do those play a role? Well, t- taking good care of yourself is, um, is, is very important to, to um, uh, manage uh, the, some of the medicines that, that you're getting. And, and having some exercise and having um, a, a good diet are, are part of that. Uh, you, know, all, you, you don't want to take a break from one uh, system to treat another system uh, because you, you're just going to get in more trouble. Uh, and so being careful about the, the amount of salt you eat, how much fluid you're taking in, if, um, if these are become issues, that, that's very, very important. Um, and in all of the 
um, disease states that I treat, exercise is a part of, of everything of that. And, and that doesn't mean that you need to go out and do Zumba, Roomba, and, and <laughs> get uh, you know super fit or do 27 uh, 20 hours in the canyon or what it means is um is be as active as you can um and be reasonable push yourself a little bit try to enjoy the activity the activity should um, enhance your quality of life and not be something that you do for your doctor or to to sort of keep your um your, your spouse off your back um I, I tell people if you're getting 20 to 30 minutes three or four days a week that's a good start um, we should all sort of aim for getting somewhere around 30 to 60 minutes, um, five or six days a week, which sounds like a lot. Um, but, but certainly getting a start at 20 to 30 minutes, three or four days a week would be um, uh, very important to avoiding troubles, to maintaining um, a level of fitness that you're happy with. Um, you can manage, I think, a lot of the um, other symptoms such as fatigue, weakness, shortness of breath by just fighting through it a little bit. And that's so easy for me to say as a physician, you know, I know you don't feel good. Why don't you just go out and exercise? Uh, but, but getting up and moving is very important part of, of maintaining your strength through this process. What about um, those that are going through treatment? Is it okay for them to exercise during treatment? Um, I would say yes, it's, a, it's important. It, it's a barometer of uh, how far are you going and how much can you do? Uh, it's part of the congestion symptoms. If you're just laying in bed all the time, um, then I can't tell whether you, um, you, your engine or your motor, I can't tell how it's running. And so uh, telling me that, you know, I've been walking around the block three times, uh, four or five times a week, and I've been doing great, and now just one lap really makes me feel poorly, that, that's very helpful information. So it also gives us an idea of, um, of what your engine's doing. So there should be no excuse for them not to try. There's to plenty of excuses. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it's a good thing we've got this recorded. It sounds mm -hmm. like that's a great commercial for the classes we offer here at the center, Pam. That's right. It is. I know. I know. You know, uh, a 30-minute yoga class. We, do, we, we, we used to do Zumba. Um, we've taken a break from Zumba. But um, most of our classes are really, really low-impact. And as you said, Dr. Brabham, it's where they are. You know, it, it's up to you how hard you go or what you do. You know, we have a walking group. We, we split into two groups. We have the more casual walking group, and then we have the ones that want to be a little more aggressive. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, all of our classes are adaptable. Uh, none of them, as you said, are training you to, you know, punch the heavy bag or, or go run a marathon. It's, it's where you are. And we talk about just advancing the ball down the field and making it just a each person a little bit better every time. And how much are those classes? Absolutely free, 100%. Hey, we like that. <laughs> it's right, fits right within the budget. And you know, one of the issues with that is people don't see themselves as um, uh, being an athlete kind of character. And that's not really what we're looking for. I've, I've seen people who are never walked for fun, never walked for exercise, and they start walking at the age of 65 after their first heart attack or something. And they say, I can't believe how good I feel. I wish I started this 10 years ago. And, and, and so a lot of that is, um, is a misconception uh, of, of what we're looking for um, when we're talking about cardiovascular health. If you haven't taken great care of yourself necessarily um, or, or um, exhibited some unhealthy lifestyles, I mean, still there's so much to be had uh, from some reasonable exercise, both from a um, anxiety and depression standpoint, uh, from um, just just feeling good, and a lot of this can come out of um, out of some illnesses that you have and, and sort of fighting through them and um, 
and, and it really gives you a sense of accomplishment that you feel a lot better before than I did before the process. Yeah, and and you know, Pam, that's kind of what what we've always said. It, it's not too late to start, mm-hmm. and it, it, it's okay. I mean, we we can we can we're there to shoulder you know right along the with you. You know, walk the walk with you, walk the journey with you. And uh, so many times we hear stories of what I would consider horror stories of um, when they're going through treatment, they're just so wiped out and, you know, they get their chemo and they go home and become very sedentary. And pretty soon that becomes a very comfortable thing and a habit. And we always encourage everyone be up and moving, you know, to whatever extent that is, is, is be active. I remember one of our patients that came here and she was elderly but she showed up to class. She might not do the class, but she showed up. So at least she got out of her house, yeah. walked in the building, and that's somewhat a form right. of exercise. That's right. So that's right. well, one of the most uh, impressive things I've seen in, in my uh, short ten years of uh, of cardiology is is how much people like to get together and exercise with other people. We have something called cardiac rehab that people have after they've had a heart failure episode or after they've um, had uh, a heart attack, and um, they go to a, a usual looking gym, but there's nurses and, um, and people there to assist them uh, with the equipment and watch them while they're doing it. They come out of there not because of their exercise, but because of the social interaction that they have, um, you know, interacting with other people who have similar problems. Uh, look at this guy. He's 10 years older than me. He's actually a lot worse off than me, but he has a great attitude every day. And that helps me just to talk to him every time. And, and I would bet that it's the same in, in the f- survivorship groups, particularly in the exercise groups. It completely is. <laughs> Sounds like our group. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of a click sometimes. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, we Diet. What do they need to do about their diet? Um, I, I would say don't overdo it on the diet in terms of um, uh, restriction. The, the very important parts um, of uh, health in a uh, middle age or advanced age person, you know, over the age of 65, let's say, is getting enough protein. And so when you're going through um, some of these treatments, um, don't neglect the protein. I need to go on a diet. Look how great I'm doing. I'm losing weight. Well, a lot of times when you're losing weight, that's not um, the fat that you want to lose. You're losing muscle because you're, um, your, your body's metabolizing these sorts of things, particularly when you have some illnesses. Um, and so really maintain a high level of uh, protein. Uh, the flip side of that is be careful on the salt. Salt always will bother you. If you're over the age of 65, then it's very likely that you um, are, are want to retain salt. And we live in a very salty part of the country. Um, we, we, our favorite seasoning here is salt. And, and, and that's one of the things I really counsel my patients on um, because all of them have a propensity to hang on uh, um, to, to the salt, which also makes you hang on to fluid. And so that's how you're going to get congested is being sort of on the cusp of having trouble, a little too much salt, a little too much fluid, and here you are with, uh, with a whole lot of symptoms. Um, it drives high blood pressure. It drives the heart failure. And I know whenever you did our talk at the Survivorship Center, um, you talked about getting your fruits and vegetables. And something that stuck with me and still is with me to this day is 10% of something is better than 10% of nothing. Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely true. You, you really um, uh, n- need to try and have a, a balanced diet. I always tell my patients um, uh, that when, you, when you're in the grocery store, you should spend all your time sort of on the outside wall of the, um, of the grocery store where the, the produce is, where the meats are, and spend very little time um, on the inside aisles where the processed food is that um, really does not, um, is not nutritious and is not what our, um, our older adults need. Yeah. 
Uh, one of the things too, Dr. Brabham, and, and um, we did a podcast early on, Pam, about um, smoking cessation. And uh, I think it's very important because I was always amazed and, and I, I've not smoked, but I know that it is it is very, very addicting and it's hard to, to break. Um, and I'm sure that's one of those discussions you have regularly uh, at, at your office or often at your office. Um, for our folks that smoke, smoking cessation can help them. Uh, you know, smoking cessation always helps everyone. Uh, people um, frequently fall into this psychological trap that you know, it, it's late in the game for me. I already have a cancer diagnosis. I already have a diagnosis of a heart attack. And so it's, it's too late. My, the damage is done. I can just keep smoking. It, it, it's too late now. And, and there's a lot of excuses to, to, to not exercise. And there's also a lot of excuses to, to not quit smoking. Um, but um, just in terms of how people feel, um, quitting smoking will make you feel better. Uh, the pains that you have are enhanced by the cigarettes. The exercise that you do, the activity that you do is impaired uh, by, uh, by the cigarette smoke. And, and so just from feeling good, um, it's super important. Now, um, the, the damage that the cigarettes cause will continue to cause, um, will continue to cause trouble. And, and I'm sure that um, everyone hears that uh, when they're at the oncologist and, um, and they're sort of defensive about it. In my, in my practice, I try to say, well, what are the barriers um, to you quitting? What is, what is your favorite cigarette? Because that's the one that we have to target. Uh, what <clears throat> After you quit, when are you most likely to um, to go back to, to the cigarette? And we have to sort of think of that ahead of time and, and try and prevent that, that next cigarette. Because so many people, it's very infrequent that people don't just say, cause, you know, I always sort of glibly say, uh, well, how much do you love smoking? And nobody ever says, I just love it. It's the greatest thing. <laughs> they say, well, to be honest with you, I don't really like it. It hurts me. You know, it makes me feel bad and all that. So, so people, I try to gauge how, um, how much trouble they're going to have quitting. And, and, and so it's really a mixed bag. And, and um, uh, having a, a strategy that, that really uh, treats them in their home and in their environment, um, I think, is most successful. Um, fear doesn't work. Um, you know, they're, they're already in your office, they're already in my office, and so, so beating them up over it, I, I don't think that's a good strategy. And a lot of times patients think if I even mention the cigarette, then I'm beating them up. And so usually what I do is I, I wait till the very, very end of the encounter. I try to be warm and friendly, um, and then I say, uh, do you love smoking? And, and they, they're sort of taken aback a little bit because it's like, well, you haven't mentioned it so far. And Ooh, I made it. <laughs> a lot of people, that's the main reason they don't want to see me. They're sweating when I come in because I'm going to beat them up for the cigarettes. And, and really, you need to see your provider. You need to see the, the, the healthcare team as people who are here to assist you with um, your, your cigarette use um, and not judge you. Because uh, we're not sitting here judging people who, who smoke. We're, we're thinking, what are the strategies that we can uh, employ what are we, what can we do to help people um, uh, you know achieve their goals and one of those goals should be um, feeling good and, and quitting smoking absolutely Pam that brings us to you know our um, tobacco free Amarillo that's a part of the the foundation mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. providing um, the, the avenue to quit and providing quit aids uh, you can actually receive free quit aids the lozenges the gum the patches whatever that may be. Uh, so it's important if that's something that, that is, you know, you're hearing this and going, you know, he's right, which I need to do this. 
you know, you can give us a call here at the Survivorship Center. We'll put you in touch with the instructors. It's it's done. The program, just so you know, the program is is taught by uh, doctors of pharmacy um, that have gone to the Mayo Clinic and have gotten all the latest research, all the latest tips and tricks, and they've done it for years. And so they can help you. And you're right, it's not one of those things to go, someone's gonna sit up in front of you and lecture and tell you how bad it is and why you should and show you the pictures and do all the, the stuff. We're here to help. Again, uh, you can call us here at the center at 806-331-2400 and we'll get you set up. Yes, um, the other thing, okay, so we've talk, uh, talked about um, diagnosis prevention. What about ongoing screening? Is there guidelines for that? You know, mammograms we do every year, but we don't hear about um, a lot of that is very specific to the patient situation. Um, uh, there are people who have sort of indefinite use of the trastuzumab, and um, and those people certainly need to be screened every every three months. Um, if you've come out of um, your treatment um, unscathed and have had no sort of um, uh, drops in your strain number or drops in your ejection fraction, then those are people that we need to sort of worry about a little bit less. But if you are a patient, and we've had several that have um, uh, taken a hit on their heart muscle uh, and have, have improved and finished their treatment, I, you know, I think a uh, either yearly or um, every other year um, visit just to see how you're doing is a good idea. If you're having extra symptoms, we can uh, then order the echocardiogram. But sort of screening echocardiograms after you're done with treatment and after everything has gone very well for you, um, I don't think there's a big place for that. But certainly maintaining a relationship with someone who understands um, what you've been through um, particularly if you've had issues, um, I think is important. Again, it goes back to communication, right? So right. if your doctor, if you're, if you're starting your chemo or you're going through chemo, uh, and a cardiologist, the word cardiologist never comes up. It's okay to ask. It's important to ask. And the, the nice thing I'm hearing too, is this is not, uh, again, something you're locked into for every, every month, every three months, uh, while you're through going through treatment and et cetera. But it's important, as we all know, to maintain a relationship. We're all getting older, and, as, and we know as we age, right, Our for instance, our heart muscle begins to age as well. And so it's important to have that relationship. They're already a step or two ahead um, having a, a, an established relationship with you or with a cardiologist. Yeah, and um, and if you are if you have other risk factors that um, that can be specifically looked at uh, during our treatment, which we we always do uh, as we're watching your your heart for damage uh, from the chemotherapy, we'll be looking at your heart attack risk. Um, you know, what what good is it to um, survive breast cancer and then have a big heart attack afterwards? Um, you know, so this is a whole um, a whole person uh, uh, approach and whole, you know integrated systems approach. Absolutely. Very informative, Pam. Very. You know. Hope our listeners um, caught on to all that. But yes. if not, you can rewind and listen <laughs> and share it with all your friends. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I have found myself a time or two saying, wait a minute, what did they say? And, and even though we recorded it, you know, but going back and going, oh, yeah, that's important. So, yeah, that's that's the beauty of, of having the podcast. Dr. Brabham, uh, we always like to end on a really positive note. Um, we're sponsored by Pete's CarSmart Kia, and we talk about a Pete's powerful moment. Uh, you, you mentioned your, your short 10 years of being a cardiologist, and I know that you've probably had several, but can you share with us and with our listeners uh, a powerful moment uh, that you've witnessed or been a part of here uh, in, in your practice? Um, th there's, there's many um, successes that we've had um, in, in treating people who have had um, 
either a, a shakeup of their um, ejection fraction or, or frank heart failure. Uh, there's, there's one lady in particular, um, she, she was sort of uh, middle-aged um, in, in the mid-50s or so, and uh, she was in the hospital with um, significant cardiovascular issues um, and had been treated with both doxorubicin and trastuzumab. Um, and uh, there she was with an ejection fraction of um, uh, 10, 15 percent and had some uh, some arrhythmias that go along with it. Sometimes people have atrial fibrillation, although I haven't seen that much in, in this specific population. She was having atrial fibrillation and it was quite ill from all of this. And um, in the first time I met her, I remember even in the room that we were in and, and she was just so overwhelmed and, um, and despondent about her situation and why has this happened and, and uh, this is such bad luck. And, um, and so, so uh, going through the treatment plan with her to, to decongest her, get her back in normal rhythm um, and reassure her that we can get her back on her chemotherapy, which was her highest goal. Um, you know, we had a long visit that, that first time um, and uh, we struggled together. We struggled together over the next um, uh, two or three months. Uh, we started on medicines, the medicines, um, you know, lower blood pressure and her blood pressure was already very soft and she was in the 110 over 60 range already and here we are adding medicines that are going to lower the blood pressure and so together we um, we struggled through this. I saw her frequently. She was very worried, very concerned, always had many, many questions um, but um, in the end her heart muscle uh, got better enough where we could um, complete her treatment um, and uh, the the funny thing, what uh, what struck me the most uh, about this um, about this lady was was her resilience and and how she didn't think that she uh, had it in her to to go through uh, this terrible process, and she always got up and and she was always uh, fighting, and you know she finished her treatment with um with with her cancer and also uh, continued on the medicines that she didn't love and she she didn't really want to be on but she chose to be on them because she wanted to maintain uh, a good heart muscle and and the un you know for me uh, I was witnessed um to, to this this resilient woman um who didn't think she could do it and and fought through um uh, all the way to the end and 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 she left my clinic and said I'll I'll see you next year and I said yeah you will yeah you will you know, we've said several times, Pam, some of our, our survivors are some of the, the strongest, uh, strong-willed some, but strongest <laughs> and most powerful people we know. Hard-headed, maybe? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we, if we could all exhibit that kind of resilience and, and, and know that, um, that we have more in us than, than we thought, yes. I think that's, that's what I took away from her. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for all your information. I hope our listeners found this um, very helpful. Yes. Um, as always, where can they find you again? Uh, I'm at Cardiology Center of Amarillo. That's um, uh, uh, next to Trips Harley Davidson uh, <laughs> on I-40, um, and uh, and we're ready to see patients. And uh, we, um, you know, fr frequently the the oncologists in this community send patients to us to um, to do these these screens already. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Brabham. We appreciate your time. And Pam, uh, you know, it brings us to the end, and we always leave our listeners with some homework, right? That's right. They, they can't forget their homework. They've always got a little bit of, of homework to do and sharing the podcast, letting folks know, uh, but also to like the podcast, give us a review, let us know how we're doing. And if you have other questions or topics or you guys ought to cover or you guys ought to speak to, let us know. Call us here at the center. Send us an email. How, how do they get a hold of us? Um, they can call us at 806-331-2400 or email us at info at 
24survivorship.org. That's right. And then, of course, their last bit of homework is to join us here next week for another great episode of Beyond the Ribbon. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beyond the Ribbon. Make sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and follow us on social media for news and updates. If you'd like more information about the 24 Hours in the Canyon Cancer Survivorship Center, please visit our website, 24survivorship.org. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week.